What's going on, everybody? This is Dr. Mario. Welcome to the Always So Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. Grateful to have you joining me today for another amazing episode. Okay, so a few weeks ago, I solicited questions from you, my listeners and followers on social media on the topic of sexual difficulties in marriage. As a marriage counselor myself, I regularly have conversations with couples about the challenges in this area of their marital love. And for a long time, I've wanted to do an episode that tackles this question specifically, but I wanted to do it in a way that honors the complexity of the issues, that is faithful to church teaching, and that is not crass, which sometimes we just fall into when we have a conversation about sexuality. So here we go. That's what this episode is about. I will give a caveat that if you do listen to this show with a teen, just, you know, it's at your discretion. We get into a beautiful, wonderful conversation, nothing crass. Uh, nothing that objectifies or that is uh, that is inappropriate, but we do have a very mature conversation. So just want to give you that caveat. Okay, so in order to tackle these questions well, I know that I needed some support. So I brought in my good friends, uh, Dr. Jennifer Morale, the moral theologian, formerly known as Dr. Jennifer Miller, and Dr. Damon Cudahy, a contraception-free OBGYN practitioner in Lafayette. Okay, so you guys asked some amazing questions and we really tackled it hard for 90 minutes. We discussed the sometimes uncomfortable experiences of transitioning into married life, newlyweds, challenges that could be there, uh, women who have low sex drives or have difficulty achieving orgasm, vaginismus, painful intercourse, uh, mismatched sex desires, sexual trauma history, challenges that emerge uh, in later in life and post-menopause stuff. Yeah, we just, we got into it all. And I think we answered questions that are appropriately geared towards husbands and towards wives. So we are, again, not vulgar in this episode, but but we certainly have a very honest conversation. So thank you so much for soliciting all the questions. If you like the episode, please go ahead and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or leave a review there as well. Be happy to receive those comments. And if the episode does very well, then yeah, we look forward to doing a, a part two to continue this conversation. So let's get into this. Well, everybody, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. This is Dr. Mario, and I have some just awesome, awesome guests with me today. So Dr. Jennifer Miller, welcome. How are you doing? I, I'm, I'm doing well. Dr. Mario, but I'm I'm Dr. Morel now. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, see, I'm the worst. It's been it's been six months. See, but I had COVID for like three of those months, so the, like that doesn't count for me. So it's Dr. Morel. My my, my sister apologies. <laughs> so let's rewind that. Dr. Morel, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. This is your first time on, is that right? <laughs> this is not my first time on, but it's my first time on as Dr. Morel. So this is <laughs> recently married six months ago. I went from Dr. Miller to Dr. Morel. Yeah, that's right. Well, there it is. There's the egg in the face right out of the gates. So hope everybody enjoys that. <laughs> and, and also joining us today is uh, Dr. Damon Cudahy for the first time on the podcast. Damon, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, uh, Dr. Mario. And I, I like that, you know, our friendship long predates either one of us carrying the title doctor. <laughs> this so, is very um, true. <laughs> well, you were in medical school when you were, uh, when, when, we were, when we were roommates way back when. Uh, so, that is true, uh, yes. So many, many years ago. So 
Damon, yeah. and we'll just go by first names if that's right with everybody. Um, yes, and sure. so, Damon, you know, just uh, since your first time on the show, a little, little introduction to yourself. Um, what, what, what are you doing out in Lafayette? Well, um, I, um, a quick background. So um, I, I graduated, uh, or I went to Florida State um, in Tallahassee. That's where um, we, we met, of course. But more importantly, it's where I met my wife. Um, of whom uh, we just uh, yeah, that's just more important. That's a much 20th, more important meeting. That's for that's sure. More, more important, yes. Even more important than my role as a doctor, um, <laughs> as I'm being con- increasingly convicted of. But um, yeah, we've been married now for 20 years. Thanks be to wow. God, we celebrated our 20th anniversary this past February, and wow. um, so that that has been a tremendous blessing. We've been blessed with uh, eight children, um, ranging in age from 18. Um, the oldest moved out last year down to um our youngest is one who moved in last year so, <laughs> so we're we're one of those a few couple i'm the only one i think at my um son's graduation that had um uh, a baby with us um as a one of our child was uh, graduating in a very modified kind of covid world you know mm-hmm. manner uh, but it was in a, in a church uh, thanks be to god so so yeah i've been married so um for 20 years um i'll just Reflect briefly on that time in Tallahassee was incredibly formative for me as a, as a young Catholic man. Um, Pope John Paul II and his teaching on marriage and, and marital love and, and these matters was it remains you know so foundational for who I am today. Um, but also the Catholic Student Union, this wonderful campus ministry by the the Brotherhood of Hope, that um, was very influential. So that really laid the groundwork for me being able to respond to the calling. Um, to my primary vocation as a husband, but then also uh, to my professional work as a physician and the unique area of that. And that's as an obstetrician and gynecologist. I graduated from medical school in Gainesville, Florida in 2003. Um, after, you know, a little bit of a bumpy road because of some of the ethical challenges and, and, and conflicts and, and, and battles, you know, in my residency training in the military. Um, I, I eventually um, finished my um, OBGYN specialty training in 2009. Uh, I worked in Pennsylvania at a Catholic hospital for four years, and uh, I moved down to Lafayette, Louisiana. Really um, providential, you know, God's, you know, calling and arranging for this to happen, no doubt. It'll be eight years this summer that I've been working at a practice here in Lafayette, uh, Louisiana. Um, we call it Acadiana OBGYN. Um, it's, it's a wonderful area with a very strong Catholic identity at the core of the culture here, which is, um, you know, it, it's amazing. It, it's, a, it's a real, you know, grace-filled um, place to be. So, um, and, you know, one of the things that does make my practice unique is that, you know, it's what I, I think is probably best described as a, a, a contraception-free OBGYN practice, which is very unique. There aren't too many of us in the country or the world that practice that way, but mm-hmm. it's also what, you know, I have found to be just the truly holistic and, and full and, and a proper approach to, to caring for women and, and families. So that's right. That's kind of the, the short version. Well, praise God. Well, thank you for, for giving us a little rundown memory lane there. That's fantastic. And uh, sure. it's just amazing yeah. to think that it's been 20 years. So, but it has been. That's absolutely the truth. Yeah. So praise the Lord for all of those things. And, uh, and thanks, Damon, for, for coming on and Jennifer for coming on. And so, and really, I just want to start by by thinking, honestly, the 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 listeners who gave the question. So we had this idea to do another type of Ask Dr. Mario and Friends type of episode where um, I've solicited questions from from the listeners. And I did one with Regina Boyd, uh, which is a great episode if you haven't listened to about dating, uh, where we tackle questions about dating. 
But this one has been a topic that's been on my heart for a long time um, to talk about sexual intimacy within marriage and the challenges that are there um, in a way that is uh, honest, uh, that upholds the church's teachings, and it's not sensational in any way, and just trying to be respectful of of the privacy, of course, that that is there. Um, and so that's where the idea came for for this episode. So me as a marriage therapist, Jennifer uh, Morale as a moral theologian, and uh, Damon Cuddy as a doctor. And uh, that kind of sounds like the start to a bad joke, doesn't it? Like a marriage therapist, a moral theologian, <laughs> sure and an OBGYN get together to a bar. Uh, what, what comes next? So, <laughs> what are they so, going to talk about? <laughs> what are they going to talk about exactly? Uh, so, so that's that's what we're going to do. They're going to find out exactly. Um, so, we received a ton of questions, and more than we'll have the opportunity to answer here. But I think that even with the way that we're going to answer them, um, we're going to maintain anonymity uh, with everybody, of course, because we're grateful for everybody's courage to ask the questions. Um, and so, if if a question comes in the direction of a, of a, of a, of a wife, we'll just refer to him as lovely wife. If, uh, if a question comes in the direction of a husband, we'll refer to him as ha- handsome husband. And if some are just anonymous and we don't know necessarily whether it's a man or a woman asking the question, we'll just say anonymous. Um, but we're going to refrain from anybody's names, um, so that everybody's privacy is kind of upheld. And honestly, because, you know, everybody, I think if anybody, if one person asked the question, it's like when I, when I was teaching, I knew if, if one person asked a question, the whole room's thinking the question. And so it all take is one, all took is one person to actually to ask it. Um, and so I know that there's lots of people who will be listening who didn't ask the questions, but had been thinking about these questions. And so we look forward to being able to tackle them to the best of our ability with the time that we have. And if we have to do a part two at some other point, then, then certainly it's something we can think about. All right. So enough of this. Let's jump into it. All right. First question. And I think this will really set the stage of our conversation. Question goes like this from um, Anonymous. How is sexual intimacy tied into prayer relationship with God? Sometimes it's hard to blend the two and feels like my prayer spiritual life is over here on one side of the room and my intimacy with um, the human person is a totally separate event over there. In the scripture where Tobias and Sarah pray before going to bed with each other, it seems odd to me or would take me out of the mood. Fair enough. Um, Busting out scripture may not be the, the biggest turn on for some people. Get it. It's all right. But I know intellectually (laughs) sex is a good and holy thing that should not be separated from spirituality. So perhaps you can sum that down to a simpler question. Uh, But how can sexual intimacy be a prayer as he meant it to be, again, Trinitarian, when sensuality and spirituality seem to oppose each other? That's a great question. So I'm going to take a first stab at it um, since it is my podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but just because I have really thought about this a lot because it comes up in marriage often, marriage therapy often. Um, well, first and foremost, like kudos to you to ask this question and to, to feel like something's a little bit off in terms of like maybe maybe looking at scripture and something there's something true about that. We, we can't we when we're speaking about sexuality and spirituality, remember, we're trying to make sexuality holy. We're not trying to sexualize Christianity. And so any any movement well towards yeah. towards that um, certainly would feel off. Um, but if there's a way that we can make uh, sex ho- holy and really be able to see it as God is, sees it, well, then that that's a journey um, that honestly takes a lifetime of us being able to navigate the various narratives um, that, that we've ingested and our various thoughts and perspectives that we have uh, with regards to, to sexuality. Um, and, and being able to then look at it as um, it's really meant to be uh, a, a piece of a larger puzzle within a relationship. 
So intimacy, physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy, emotional intimacy, they're all supposed to build on one another and, and support and, 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 uh, and build up one another. Um, and so we, we, when we're growing together in our emotional relationship, um, when we're growing together in prayer, if we're able to start praying together, uh, we should also then see ways of being able to communicate and, and to, to grow together in, in our physical love. And so what does that mean kind of practically speaking? Well, where to begin? Well, first and foremost, the place I would ask is, do you feel comfortable praying with your spouse right out of the gates? That would be the first question I would, I would, I would ask this person to reflect on um, how comfortable do you feel just praying with your spouse? Even not even about sexuality, but just praying together, whether it's a rosary or praying scripture or doing the mass readings or free form prayer at the end of the evening or whatever it is that, that you feel comfortable doing. How comfortable do you just feel praying together? Um, and then how comfortable do you feel in your interior life bringing your desires then to, to the Lord? Um, so, so those are kind of some questions right there. I would say when it comes to specifically about sexual sex in, in the, the marital act, um, if you don't feel comfortable praying before, or you feel like that might be a little bit of a turnoff, then maybe there's a different way of kind of thinking about it. Think about it more in the sense of gratitude. Okay. So if we always say grace before meals, because we're, we're praising God for the gift that he's about to give us. And so maybe it needs to be hmm. of, of connecting with a sense of gratitude. And if you don't feel comfortable or you feel that maybe saying a prayer right before kind of will kill the mood a little bit. But what about after that? What about after if, if it's been an experience that genuinely has been something that has brought the two of you together as the act supposed to babies and bonding, unitive and procreative, then maybe afterwards when you're in the embrace and the afterglow that you're expressing when all those all those hormones of, of, uh, of oxytocin and all that bonding stuff is kind of kicking, maybe that's the place where just... In your, in your imagination, just inviting the Lord into that space and allowing that gratitude to not just be between the two of you, but to extend beyond. Um, so maybe that might be a place where it might feel a little bit more natural in terms of how to bring the Lord um, into this. So I've just threw out a lot, but I'm going to toss it to Jennifer um, as uh, somebody who's also thought about these things a lot. So Jennifer, what do you think about this question? Well, I have to agree with you. Um, like you said, like I absolutely love this question, especially because for many years I've studied and thought about it from the outside. And now being newly married six months, I've had a lot of um, opportunity to think about it and to reflect on this from the inside as well. And I think one of the, the things that, that the questioner said here was really key because they used the word um, sensual right? They use the word sensual to talk about the, this expression of human sexuality, which really does what? It brings us back to creation, right? The fact that God created us with five senses. He created us with memory, imagination, with all of our passions. All of those things were created to lead us towards the good. And they, he so much desires that, that when we begin to do things well, you can think of you ran recently a marathon, right? Uh, Pre-COVID. <laughs> like, like a year um, ago. <laughs> not so recent. Or <laughs> recently. I mean, the, you know, was it two years ago recently? Um, Damon with his, with his art of medicine, right? When we focus on using well the, that body-soul unity that he's given us, then we begin to, to live out a virtuous life. We do good things well, easily, with pleasure. And I think this is important because when we are talking about the marital act, this isn't something where we're just talking about sexual desire or we're not just talking about like pleasure in and of itself like you eat an ice cream right? We're really talking about learning to do something well, like mm -hmm. learning to love well my spouse. And That's that right. is supposed to bring us joy, right? And it's a joy that comes from the way that, that God has created us. 
it's a joy that comes from the way that God has created our spouse. And especially in my own reflections on this recently, I think two things that were very helpful for me, first, just reading the lives of Mary Saints, and Louis Martin, which gives like that whole picture um, of what marital life is like. And while the, I would say the sexual isn't directly or explicitly addressed, you know that this is extremely important for them because before they were married, Zali thought it was impossible to be holy and to engage in sex with her husband. I mean, they had discussed having a Josephite marriage, celibacy all the way through, and instead it was their parish priest who convinced them there was great holiness um, in this act, hmm. in this mode of loving one another and bringing children to God. So that would be the first thing that I do. Because I think that helps with a whole lot of things in marriage, to read the way that married saints affronted the same difficulties, challenges, and joys that we do. But the second, and, I, and I'm happy you said this, Mario, is I've tried to get into that habit um, of both loving my spouse well during the act, right? Making sure it's not just a search for pleasure. Um, it's not just we're, we're hitting it before the bell or the alarm clock goes off in the morning. But like, how can I do this well? Right. Like, how can I let him know that this for me is an act of love and then thanking God afterwards? So we don't necessarily pray together afterwards, but but I will. I'll thank God in my heart. I always make sure to thank him. That way it continues to be an act that expresses love right in the image of the Trinitarian God who is love and not a search for pleasure that can leave us feeling kind of empty afterwards. Yeah. Amen. Well said. So a couple of things that I really just want to highlight with what you said is, and this is important for us as we're kind of moving along this conversation is that the, the, the act, the, while our, our while we may think that the, 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 the purpose of it is just pleasure. It's not, it's, it's that pleasure has that purpose that if it's the intention is that if I'm loving my spouse well through this, then this is in conformity with what God's plan is for marriage. And being able to always take that perspective where I'm, where I'm focused on the other um, in terms of tenderness, in terms of understanding what their preferences are, in terms of understanding their pace, um, knowing who they are um, in, in this specific type of expression, that this act then fits within, again, the larger context of the relationship and the larger context of what God has given to us um, in, in our marriage and in ways that we can express um, our love to one another. And so then... That just means that we're just inviting God into our relationship, just like we do across the board. And we're inviting God into this aspect of our relationship as well, out of an act for, for loving our spouse. And um, and I love the way that you said that. And then even talking about the married saints and, and Louis and Zelie and their transformation, as you said, you know, in terms of thinking that they were going to, that the best way they could express themselves was through a Josephite relationship, but then their parish priests encouraging them to to be open, you know, to life as, as a particular means of, of, of God's grace and salvation into them. So with that then, like, well, Damon, is there anything else you want to add? Sorry. I'm yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm hearing this and I, I love everything y'all said. It's, it's wonderful, but I, I, you know, in my perspective, you know, both as a married man and as a physician, I think it's important to see there, I think there's reasons we need to acknowledge why there is this tension, you know, that so many of us experience and trying to integrate, you know, the physical aspect of, you know, married life and intimacy with our, our spiritual life. And I think it's the, the context of our culture today, particularly, which is probably similar to, I think, early, you know, Christian times when there was incredibly hedonistic culture where there's such a hyper-sexualization 
um, in our culture, and and not just hypersexual, but a hypersexual of non-marital abuse of the sexual faculties, and, and another way in our culture where pleasure is emphasized so much that the the one moral code, and I guess that's the core of what hedonism is, is you know to maximize pleasure for the most number of people, and that seems to be the rule that we increasingly are drawn to, and so um, I think that in, in many ways, you know. There, we've been wounded because of this, you know, but, and so many of us have been wounded by past, you know, abuse, which we'll come to later, I don't know, perhaps, or even just even past sins uh, of, against purity, you know, pornography, for example, an incredible um, epidemic or scourge, you know, in our culture today that has created, you know, um, this woundedness and, and being able to bring back a, a more pure approach. And so, I think that the first step is just really kind of ordering our behavior. And, and so I think that a couple that is engaging in, you know, certain um, immoral things like use of pornography, even if it's, you know, even if the wife doesn't mind for some or they've been told by a sex therapist they should to get aroused, but even something like contraception, I, I think that when there's a use of contraception, that automatically kind of separates and puts a barrier between them and a, and a grace and an access to grace. Um, you know, there's a there's a phenomenon where physicians do this. So um, there's a lot of physicians that will go to mass on Sunday, and then on Monday morning they're out prescribing contraception or maybe even doing abortions. And and there's kind of a disconnect, and that's why it, they many physicians would feel like their faith is something they kind of box off here on Sunday morning, and then they have their separate life and their medical practice. And I think sometimes in marriage we do the same thing. We have our faith here, and we we box away, and then when we our physical intimate with our spouse, we just kind of let all, you know, you know, kind of disregard, you know, any other kind of moral, you know, um, guide rails on how we behave with our spouse simply because we're married. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And so, you know, if, if we think of sex then only in that context, um, then yeah, it's going to be hard to, to, to kind of look at it as something holy in terms of just being strict hedonism. And that's why agreed. Like if we all see it as, as, in the context that it's meant to be seen in, then we can start moving towards that direction in terms of like unity and really bringing that before us. So, all right, well, let's keep going then. All right. So the next question well, here, I want to say one more thing. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a comment that Jennifer said about that. We're going to come back to this, but I, I like how she reminded us that, you know, I think you mentioned it too, Mario, how there's a joy that comes from a good meal. You know, there's a natural consequence of it, you know, right. eating a steak. <laughs> But there needs to be, you know, we don't pursue food solely for its pleasure. You know, we, you know, that's the kind of disordered, you know, leading towards gluttony and abuse of food. So I we do in New Orleans sometimes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, but, don't say anyway, that in New Orleans. I just, all my, all my New Orleans have just turned out on and off. That's, but, but, well, but no, but, but see, but <laughs> yeah. no, but see, but, yeah. see, but we don't just pursue food. I, I was going to push back on that. We don't just pursue food just for the strict nutrition of it. I mean, we, we, there's, there's something uniquely human about taking something as base as a, as a meal. I've thought about this a lot actually, which is like, yeah, yeah. we could just cut it up and, and eat it and fry it or whatever it is, or cook it on a campfire. But the fact that we have the capacity to turn something as basic as our, as our female, I mean, excuse me, as our food, our, 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 our feasting, that something that we just have to do by nature, that we take something as basic as, as a desire for food and turn it into a feast. Like that's that's uniquely human that we have the capacity to take something as mundane as eating and turn it into something right. absolutely tremendous. And so so I, I actually do communal. think that it's, it's a, 
Well, it's, it's, a, it's a way of growing with other, yes, with other people. It, well, it's it's communal, but it's also it's something it's something human. It's just something something artistic that that like yeah that i do think that like we we don't just eat just just for nutrition i mean i certainly have my protein shake in the morning just to get my protein in but i'm not i'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm sucking that thing down as fast as possible like i'm not but i'm not doing that when i go to a nice restaurant with my wife you know like i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna enjoy this meal my i'm gonna let my faculties especially if i'm spending a lot of money on it i'm gonna i'm gonna enjoy <laughs> every every ounce of it. i'm gonna smell it i'm gonna taste it i'm gonna embrace it and and I think it's it's mm. that type of perspective that we're supposed to approach the marital act with is that in Jennifer, you said sure. it beautifully, which is that if, if it's just about the, the pleasure of it, you know, then just it's like drive through going to Cane's or whatever. I mean, like you're not you're not you're scarfing that food down, you know, but when you're sitting down, like we have the capacity to transform this act, which, of course, is is about procreation, which, of course, is about about being open to life, which is, of course, about about the, the, those things. But there is something uniquely human that we can take this and then turn it into something beautiful and unique. And that's a, a unique expression of my marriage, that I have a unique way of being able to express mm. this relationship with only this person in only this way and only this moment, because every time should be unique and unrepeatable. And so so it it, it is that the, the beauty and the senses and all of that, God wants to bless all of that in order, in, in, and enliven all of that. Um, and bring that all to, yeah, to, 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 to where he wants it to, to, to be. So I, I'll make one last comment just because I really liked the word artistic. <laughs> um, and I, I think you're right. I think, as you said, this is something couples grow in over time, right? So sometimes if, if we've listened to enough, um, theology, of the body tapes, we think it's kind of like automatic. <laughs> like I should immediately be having my mystical experience in the, in the midst of the conjugal act. <laughs> Um, but I think it's really like when you use that word artistic, what does it call to mind? It calls to mind like Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel, you know, or a work by Leonardo da Vinci or Caravaggio with the play on the light and the dark. And each one of those works is clearly the work of that master, right? You don't look at Caravaggio and say, oh, I must be looking at Michelangelo. Like you're, you know, and when you see the Sistine Chapel, you know who that is. It's been signed by a master. And yet at the same time, each one of those works of that master is unique. And so I really like using that analogy to talk about, I guess, like the goal or like the way that we should understand it so that we can work towards loving our spouse better in each and every marital encounter that we have. Yes. Yes. Well, and that's exactly why then like looking at pornography before you, you make love is, 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 a, is a farce. I'm just going to say that because it, it, it disdains right. that exactly what you're speaking about is that do I want this? masterpiece that we're trying to create between me and my spouse to look like that you don't want it to look like that michelangelo didn't want his thing to look like anything other than what it was which was his own um and so uh so i think that that's beautiful beautiful imagery okay so let's go to the next question and and jennifer i'm going to let you lead on this one then uh, what advice would you have for newly married couples as sexual intimacy becomes part of their relationship particularly those struggling with this change yes this is um, from a lovely wife so from lovely wife, uh, but the first thing I, I want to go back to what I said earlier is really reading the letters of St. Zelie and Louis Martin. Um, again, because there are so many challenges that are going to come up in, in your marriage and you need to be able to, to have the guidance of the saints on that. Um, 
as kind of as your good girlfriends, right? So, so when I'm like, my husband is impossible. Why in the heck did I get married? You know, which I'm sure I will be saying for about 60 more years, you know, at some point every couple of months, um, like I read that and it reminds me, I'm not alone. This is typical. You're not, you are not on your own. You are like walking the same, the same walk of sanctity that like billions of Catholic women have walked before you. So I think that's really important to say. One of the things too, that I found was really helpful for me and my husband and because of COVID and visa reasons, I married a Frenchman um, during lockdown. <laughs> we, uh, we had to get married really quickly, right? So we had two, two and a half months to make all the preparations, which included, of course, our marriage prep. But a couple of days after we got married, we uh, we were in the kitchen doing like random things, which this is what I've been told by a sociologist. Like if you want to have a heartfelt conversation with a man, don't stare him in the eyes, do something with him. Mm-hmm. So uh, we mm-hmm. were in the kitchen cooking, I think. And, um, and we just kind of talked about like not just our relationships in the past, which we had done before, but those places where um, where perhaps we had been been also uh, wounded or hurt sexually, mm-hmm. and that was really important. I was, um, and this is the first time I've said this publicly, but but I was the victim of not only sexual harassment and abuse during my graduate studies, but also of rape. Oh, and um, being able to oh, tell that to my to my husband, right, was a great gift to him because he was able to say later. Um, that night as we're lying in bed, he said, thank you. That was very helpful for me. Like I needed to know that about you so I can know how to better love you. So, so communication on these issues, um, I think is really important. You, people do not need details telling a man that you, that you have been abused or raped in a certain sense makes him feel powerless, but it's important for him to know those things about your past. And it's important for you to know those things about his past where they exist. I also think um, that as a newly married woman, you have the the right and the, and the beautiful privilege to to insist on and and to continue as a married woman to insist on delicacy when when approaching the marital act. Um, so that first night when we consummated our marriage, for example. Um, I was all laced up in the back with my wedding dress at a beautiful wedding gown and my husband undid the laces, but left me to undress and to put my robe on by myself. And, um, I was, <laughs> you know, I was just terrified, you know, as a, as a new bride, but that was, that was a great gift to me. Um, even the second night he's like, are you better now? And I was like, nope, <laughs> like, <laughs> I still want privacy on So This is the second night. Right. So like. We had light candles, but we were, were not staring at each other. And I think even that's something we've continued in our marriage, right? There's, um, yes, we have the joy of looking at the beauty of, of one another and the fullness of the way that God has created us, as St. John Paul II would say, in all of our visible masculinity and femininity. Um, and at the same time, you know, if we happen to be in the bathroom when the other person is taking a shower, like there's great respect. There's not like a staring, there's not an oogling, you know, like I'll hand him his towel, whatever. And I think these things kind of help us to begin to get accustomed to things as as beautiful, as powerful, as mysterious, as strange as the marital act. Um, and also as banal as having to sleep beside someone else 
uh, to get accustomed to them moving in the middle of the night and sometimes snoring. <laughs> so, so if any of those things have been helpful for you, I am happy. <laughs> well, Jennifer, I, um, I don't even know how to respond to be sincere. I kind of feel like I just want to stop the podcast to be perfectly honest, but thank you for, for sharing what you just shared. Um, that's great yeah, thank courage. You, thank you for entrusting us, you know, with that information. Um, because as you said, it's important in terms of this question with regards to what are the challenges that couples are facing as they transition into this. And again, assuming that this couple here that you've tried to be pure, uh, this question that, that came from this bride here, that uh, if you've tried to be pure before, sometimes it is a transition um, because it becomes difficult to say, well, I've been trying to not suppress, but navigate those feelings, those, those sexual feelings and, and, and trying to not necessarily ignore them, but trying to put them in this appropriate place, knowing that that's going to have its, its, its fruition in marriage. And now you're married. It's like, well, what does that mean now? And so I think the first thing is recognizing that it is a transition. That's the first thing. So it's going to require patience. And as you said, tenderness and respect of one another. But part of that transition also is that is have you had these conversations about each other's sexual past? Um, and, and if you haven't had them before, then needing to have them early on is absolutely important because it's going to give the context um, because we bring all these memories and these experiences with us, um, especially if there's been certain traumas, um, as you stated, you know, Jennifer, thank you for, for sharing that quite beautifully. That helps, you know, your husband have a better context of, of what's happening. And so, so those are certainly the questions that need to be, um, to, to conversations that need to be had. But I think that, again, like, it's learning, it's learning each other. It's being patient and, and it's being able to actually have those conversations about, well, well, what is it that you need? What is it that you don't need? What, uh, what is it that you prefer? What is it you don't prefer? And sometimes these things are kind of difficult to kind of talk about within our spouses. But I think it's it's important to have these conversations um, because it does bring about, um, again, further intimacy at an emotional level, greater trust and security at a physical level, which in a little bit we'll talk about is really important for women. Uh, that trust and security in the relationship when it comes to sexual pleasure the research is pretty clear that like that is that is of profound significance. Um, so, Damon, what are you thinking? What do you feel about this question? Well, no, I, I think it's a good one. And I think going back to what I, I, I theme I introduced before, we have to put in the context of how wounded we've become in our culture. And, you know, so many of us, sadly, today, our first exposure to anything in the sexual realm has been you know, a, a falsification of, um, you know, a cheapening of it in the form of pornography. And so th these are acts that are typically very abusive and degrading to women in particular, but also to the man. And um, and then something that I, I was really struck with is, you know, this effort to scare young people away from engaging and intercourse, you know, and and the teen years, there's a heavy emphasis on STDs. And I remember being shown these images of Male Awful. and female genitals with these. Awful. I remember that in high school. Stores. So I was like, what? This yeah. is disgusting. Never in my life will I ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. And so it, you just have this sort of visceral rejection like, oh, this is ugly. This is dirty. This is yeah. repulsive. And you combine that with the um, uh, the pornography and how, you know, spiritually, you know, um, sickening that is if, when we're honest with ourselves. And so I remember I, have, I was in at Florida State, you know, studying biology and I had this sort of epiphany and the Holy Spirit kind of spoke my heart and I was studying botany. And, um, and, and those of you who know anything about botany, I'm sure are aware that the sexual organ of a plant is the flower. 
And that's also the organ that is, you know, or the, no, the aspect of a plant that is most be- beautiful that we that we cherish, you know, of all the the plant uh, parts of the plant, the root and the stem and the all that. It's the the flower, and so it, that just was a real kind of epiphany that it, God's design for marital ultimacy, you know, conjugal love was is this should be a beautiful thing. And I think it's our culture and our sin and our brokenness that's made it out to be something dirty, something repulsive. And so I think that, um, again, being, you know, allowing God to heal us in our perceptions of, of what this is and his plan, you know, what this is intended to be versus what we may have experienced in our, our own brokenness and in our, our broken world. Yeah. And so I think then again, for this couple that's in the transition, it is, um, it's a question of, I really think, patience. Um, in, in subtlety, in learning each other's subtleties. So really paying attention to each other. So I, I think of it like, um, like a dance. I think that's a good analogy. You know, you, you're, there's a certain rhythm and as you trust each other's uh, movements, you kind of know the subtleties of, of when the hand moves one way, uh, the, 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 the dancing partner is going to go in that direction. Um, and then the more you dance with somebody, the, the more you kind of know what they, what, what, what they enjoy. Um, again, using an artistic kind of expression here. The other one I think would be like jamming in a band, you know, like like when when you see people who know what they're doing with their craft with music, it's really beautiful. And and if you've ever been, I have never been part of an intense jam session because I can't really play anything, but that's besides the point. But like when I, I appreciate <laughs> it, when I see it in people and when I can see somebody who, who could, could do something really spectacular uh, with an instrument or harmonies, when people are singing in harmonies, I mean, it's just this type of stuff is spectacular. It's, it's a similar type of approach that we're trying to take that, again, is unique to your relationship. And so if there is history, um, learning how to, again, pray for healing and grace for that, uh, but learning how to then make this relationship something unique um, and uh, in, in, in working with that. So if there's any specifics of the difficulties, it may be worthwhile asking, well, what are the specific things that are causing trouble? Um, and, and that's what we're going to get into right now, actually, because there's some real questions that are coming up here. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Mario taking a quick break from my conversation here with Drs. Morel and Cudahy to encourage you to check us out at faithinmarriage.org, where you can find past episodes of the Always Hope podcast. You can read up on my blog, as well as register for an upcoming marriage retreat. So if you have other questions as well related to this topic and others that you'd like for me to tackle in a future episode of the podcast, you'll see a link on the website, the Ask Dr. Mario tab. Go ahead and click that, submit your question. Me and my team will receive it and we'll review them and uh, determine if there's enough questions to be able to, to keep going with future episodes such as this. So check it all out at faithinmarriage.org. So here's a question that we're going to kind of half answer. Um, is a question that says, is it ever morally permissible to use a sex toy in conjunction to penetration in the act of intercourse, particularly if the wife finds great difficulty in obtaining orgasm? And so we're going to, I, I want to break this question apart. Um, Jennifer and I, we were talking before, and Jennifer, I want to make sure I hear this right from, from a moral theologian perspective, that the, the use of a sex toy specifically is something that hasn't been clearly defined. Is, is that right? So this is in moral theology. There are a lot of things that you don't get documents on. <laughs> and this is this is possibly something where more theologians would have different responses. Um, specifically, 
would would have different responses, right? So it's not necessarily something that has yet been um, a question that has been addressed to the magisterium. So this is where we're still gathering information and we want to be able to, to give y'all a, a much better and clearer answer. So we're not going to address the moral op the moral response right now, but uh, if I remember correctly, Mario, mm -hmm. you would say we want to look at some of the psychological dimensions that come into play here. Yeah, be because the question here that's coming up is, is, um, uh, is the challenge of achieving pleasure. You know, and so we've talked about earlier in terms of saying we're, we're not speaking about pleasure. And, and Damon, you, you made this very clear in terms of like this isn't the end all be all. We're not speaking about this as the end. But if we speak about or orgasm in, in, in mutual climax as something that um, even JP2 in, in love and responsibility, you know, encourages in terms of a sense of like we, we we're trying to achieve certainly a, a, a unity t together um, that if there's a difficulty that's there. And I think that's what's being communicated here more. More than anything else is what I hear from this from this bride. This question is, is that there's a challenge and a difficulty with within her own sexual desire and achieving and getting to that to that point of climax. Um, and so I have uh, some particular thoughts that are going to address this. Um, something that's that I read in, in this last week in preparation for this interview was asking was uh, it's a book. It's a again, it, this these things are anything in the psychological field right now, we have to always read with with a certain lens. We're recognizing that that uh, the, the morality of them is not in agreement with what we uh, would teach as as a, as a as a church, but that there's still some truth in the science uh, that we can hold on to. We can apply even within our relationship. And one of those researchers, what she she communicates is, is that there's really kind of two mechanisms that are going on with sexual desire. Um, and, and there is the things that, that turn us on uh, in terms of uh, accelerating our sexual uh, exhibition or, or not, and again, not, in, let me use the right words here, in terms of sexual excitement, that's the word I'm looking for, you know, that accelerates that, what turns somebody on, aren't necessarily the things that turns somebody off and puts the brakes in sexual desire. So there are different things that uh, accelerate or, or excite, and there are different things that then inhibit or put the brakes on. And so it could be that that there is a situation where somebody, because when we just think of desire, we're like, I'm never in the mood, I'm never in the mood. Why is she never in the mood? That's the, kind of one of the critiques that's often all, that's made all the time. Um, that it could be that uh, things that uh, are related to sexual excitement or subtleties, again, subtleties of paying attention to your spouse. Um, it may be that you get that them doing the dishes you see, or them playing with their with your kids. Uh, or uh, going on a walk and seeing them in a different light, that those type of things um, are things that, 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 again, that move you towards being in the mood, um, that that's okay. Those are, those are beautiful. But then it could be that uh, there are things that, that put the brakes on where it's like, you, you know, you, 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 the door isn't locked or, or you think you heard the, the kids waking up or, uh, or something else happens that kind of puts the brakes on the sexual desire that, it could be that there's there's a sensitivity one way or the other, or maybe there's a, a low sensitivity uh, towards a, the acceleration of, of 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 being in the mood or desire, or it could be that there's a high sensitivity of the brakes, and so it or it could be the opposite, where maybe it's just medium, or there's a low sensitivity with the brakes, which tends to be uh, the case with with men, and in a high you know, uh, when it comes to accelerating. And so I think that that this couple would want to have conversations related to that in terms of like, well, what are the things that 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 put in the mood? And what are the things then that 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 put the brakes on and having some discussion about that? Because then 
then you can have a whole context of, of a conversation um, related to this that doesn't necessarily equate having to get into uh, the particulars of whether or not we're using a, a, um, a toy or something of that nature. I, I just like to, to second that, Mario, if you don't mind, um, because I think one of the things, and, and John Grabowski wrote this in his book, Sex and Virtues, considered the foremost interpreter of St. John Paul II in the U.S., and he said one of the things that moral theology is not dealt a lot with, he named a couple that have, so now I'm excited to read them, but he says is really female sexual desire and female orgasm, right? And so if we see sex as both procreative and unitive and that those are inseparable, right? And procreativeness has to do also with that fruitfulness or that flourishing, then it's really important in, uh, in moral theology, but also in specific couples to be able to have those wholly awkward conversations about, honey, I love you, but this thing isn't happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, maybe we need to try something different or maybe, you know, I, I thinking too as a woman, and this might not necessarily be her situ- situation. I think sometimes women feel that the need to sacrifice more, right? I, if I sacrifice more, that makes me a better wife. Um, but in, in doing so, right, you're not allowing or you're not calling your husband to love you in the best manner that he can. So again, I, I just kind of want to second that. I, I think this begins as, as a psychological question, right? Like what, how can they better love each other and how can they better communicate about the manner in which they're loving one another? Yeah. Damon, any thoughts? I think, uh, I, yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, it's important because I think that um, leaving, picking up where Jennifer left off psychological, but also I think it's easy for us men to kind of lose perspective on the reciprocity and and how much more in, in, of a priority the emotional bonding is of marital intercourse. And, you know, we can kind of assume that women have the same intense desire for physical pleasure that we do um, and, and, and sort of feel that we're inadequate as a husband if we're not, cre- you know, a uh, stimulating her to the same type of physical excitement that, that a man feels more easily as a reflex. Mm-hmm. And and so I think this idea, you know, is a little bit dangerous, you know, with introducing a novelty in terms of, you know, the Christian tradition. I don't think that there is ever any need to talk about, quote, sex toys. <laughs> That's a, that seems to be kind of a new, you know, thing in terms of, it's, I think it's developed in a culture where there's been, uh, again, a hyper focus on maximizing pleasure in this act where the primary end and be all is pleasure. So if, if this battery operated toy is going to induce a physical reflex that, that maximizes pleasure, then it's, then that's something we should do. Whereas um, talking to not only my wife, but patients, that's not really the most important thing for women in, in most situations. You know, many times women would appreciate just the the a husband taking time to listen to her share her day, maybe to give her a massage. I mean, for a lot of women, just a massage, you know, to help her to relax and be more, quote, in the mood um, rather than immediately going to some sort of artificial sexual stimulation where the, the device is in the situation. So I think that um, and and. And it's uh, and again, John Paul II is teaching about this, and it is definitely he does teach us that it's a good thing for the husband to to try to seek ways to help a woman to um, at a climax with him. But it, it it's not he does he doesn't take it as some of his other um, interpreters have to the point of justifying all acts before and after 
as long as, you know, at some point there's, you know, right. vaginal intercourse. And so I think that we've got to be careful that, you know, we, again, put it into the context of, um, you know, the, the true, you know, purpose ends of, of um, the marital act, but also even what does the woman in this case even really desire most? Does she desire most more physical stimulation or does she desire more emotional understanding and compassion and tenderness, you know, with from her husband? Well, it, it, it could be exactly. And so that's where the individual question comes from, because I have worked with couples where yeah. the females have had higher sex drives than their husbands. And uh, and that's been sure. very cross, you know, at times. And and so right. uh, what in, in reading up in this, you know, about this and learning just again, I'm not I'm not an expert in sex therapy, but the little bit that I do know kind of over my years of counseling is that what you see is that um, it, for men, male sexuality and, and male pleasure, it's it's it, it's I mean, the biology is just it's simpler hardware to say it that way. It's not trying to be crass, right, it's a but, but, but it yeah, just, it's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's just is, it just is. It's a, it's, it's in, and it's a, in the, the female uh, organism is, is, is a much more complex system. And we see that also in terms of the brain as well. And the differences that are there, of course, we know that the majority of the brain systems are the same, but the places where there are distinctions between male and female brains, uh, we see significant distinctions. And so then when it comes to something like sexual desire, you know, we see um, greater disparity uh, with women than we do with men um, in terms of like what the range is. Um, so so hmm. I think that the question really becomes one of, 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 again, going back to, well, what are the things then that um, that that do, uh, again, for lack of a better way of saying this, you know, to turn move you into uh, um, I would say turning on. But I don't want to be crass. See, this is this is my language here. I don't I don't want to be crass with our words here. That moves you into right. a desire for for real union with your spouse. Um, and what are the things that then turn that off uh, in terms of put the brakes on it? And so it, it 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 could be that there's trauma. It could be it could be the smell. It could be that. But you need to go take a shower. You know what I mean? Like it could be it could be it could be any like you just play basketball. Like you, like you, nothing happened until you go. Or, clean or yourself maybe off. you know maybe you you've know? been selfish all day so, and haven't done anything to help me, and now you expect me to be physically receptive. Exactly, to you. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, and some researchers have said that you know quote unquote foreplay, if we want to say that starts 24 hours before, you know, like it's like it's right. everything that's happened throughout the day that allows uh, for one to be able to start turning off because really what it is that often it's there's a lot of women are are, are, are more sensitive to uh, to stress and to anxiety, and to threat responses. And I'm not saying that blanketly. Absolutely. I'm not saying that it's just the, the research shows um, it, it, it just it, well, it, well, speaking it, of the research. Let me so, just. So I guess, but I want to ask you one question with regards to this statement when it comes to like, this is a question for you specifically then is, is that like, but if somebody is struggling with something like vaginismus or something of that nature, where, where, where it's difficult, where, where, where penetration itself is just, is just painful, um, where we could deal with it certainly at a psychological level of, of, of mindfulness exercises, relaxation exercises, attentiveness to what the threat response is, all, all of those things. But at a medical level, what what is what is permissible in terms of allowing or what you see uh, to be able to help the couple kind of move forward with with the, with the difficulties? Yeah, that? good question. And I want to get to the vaginismus really immediately following this because um, sure. I, I don't want to lose this point. Um, so looking at the secular medical approach, you know, OBGYN, women's health, particularly, there's a you know what's pretty much become the authoritative database. It's you know a subscription, unfortunately, but it's uptodate.com. Mm-hmm. Any physician knows what I'm talking about. 
Um, and this is just, it's a couple of sentences, just to kind of put in context, this is what a secular, you know, medical approach is about the woman's sexual response. And this is under a, a topic on um, female um, hypoarousal sexual disorder, you know, um, where women have struggled with this or sexual dysfunction in women. And so they, they describe the, the traditional description of the sexual response divided into four phases, desire, also libido, arousal or excitement, orgasm and resolution. Right. Um, this framework cannot be applied consistently to women's sexual response. For many women, the phases may vary in sequence, overlap, repeat, or be absent during some or all sexual encounters. And this is, a, this is an interesting thing. All subjective satisfaction with the sexual experience may not, also subject, subjective satisfaction with the sexual experience may not require achieving all response phases, including orgasm. As an example, for many women in long-term relationships, desire may not be present prior to sexual activity, but may increase with arousal in response to pleasurable activity. And then, uh, then while it is helpful to know which aspect of sexual function is a, a problem impacts, many women have concerns that relate to multiple aspects of the sexual response. Sexual response may also be understood within an interpersonal context. This is a secular medical database. Um, while, sex, while desire may be an initiating factor for sexual activity, women are also often motivated by other reasons, including a wish for emotional closeness or to strengthen a relationship with a partner. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, is something that I think men especially need to do that. Women, they know it. But, you know, us as husbands, you know, we are many times, this is a big blind spot we have in our relationship with our wives. Um, so I'll just throw it out there. But I want to move on to the next thing. So vaginismus. You know, where a woman has basically spasmodic type, you know, um, uh, response of pain from the, the muscles in the vaginal wall that go into a sort of spasm. And when you have a muscular spasm, any push against it, like in a back spasm, elicits more pain. So you end up with a cycle, an attempt to push back the muscle spasm elicits more pain. And, and there are definitely psychological components to that. But, um, and for many patients, I've had to counsel them in this particular condition where they have sort of a, um, a tense, you know, a muscle spasms in the vaginal area that makes intercourse and attempts of, of intercourse painful. Sometimes there's a, a simple uh, physical therapy type of device called a vaginal dilator. And, and I have to kind of gently and delicately explain to them, although this might look like a sex toy, like we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. This isn't a sex toy. It's is actually a medical device that's trying to help to allow her her vaginal muscles to relax and not um, spasm. Because there's a point when it eventually the muscle will fatigue, and so a, a smaller dilator at first. And it's not dilating in the sense of trying to open an orifice as an opener. It's just trying to train the muscles to relax with you know with um, insertion of what it will eventually be the husband's, you know, organ. So I think it's it's an important thing kind of piggybacking on that idea of a toy, something that might look like a toy. You know, there is actually a legitimate medical use for it in the situation of vaginismus. Um, and I'll go ahead and jump into this. A related thing I deal with a lot with my patients that deal with the medical condition called dyspareunia, which means painful intercourse. It's um, almost exclusively a, a condition that women deal with. There are many times um, medical conditions that require surgical intervention. Um, and the most common one that I encounter is endometriosis. It also is a commonly associated with infertility, but there are many patients from have done a cervical procedure, laparoscopy, um, to remove this abnormal tissue within the pelvis that is, you know, it's just going through abdominal incisions. 
that is causing pain within a horse, so much so that the woman can't ha- has lost all desire. And and for some women, it, it's a cause of this complete lack of um, any interest and intimacy with her husband physically anymore. Damon, thanks so much for getting right into that. That was excellent. I mean, <laughs> and, and, it, and it's important to know. So so when it comes to this is a distinction that you made in terms of the dilator, that the, the purpose of it is, again, right. When we speak of like a sex toy, and I think the temptation is here, you know, to 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 make that an end to in itself. But if it's if it's not that specifically, but like as you talk about a medical device, if there's a specific issue that is preventing um, uh, the physical union to take place, and that's causing distress in the relationship, which then becomes a self that can easily become a, a self fulfilling prophecy. This this cycle where it's like. Well, he's in the mood, but now I feel bad. And so that causes more contraction and more spasming, which makes it even more difficult and I feel even right. worse. And so so it becomes a very negative cycle uh, that can build on one itself. That if if there are specific interventions that you spoke about um, that can be utilized, um, then again, in a way that is meant to bring about uh, unity in, in the relationship, um, then then avail yourself to them. Um, and so thank you so much for, for bringing that up. And, and even when it comes yeah. to, Looking at um, the the, uh, the, cert, the the procedure that you spoke about uh, with regards to just kind of assessing. This is why we talk about a theology of the body. Well, there's a body that's that that there's a theology yeah. of. You know, like we we have to like we right. can't disregard the the the, the biological challenges uh, that are present um, if they are present and, and making it difficult for the for for a relationship to kind of uh, experience this type of union. So, Jennifer, any other thoughts you want to offer here? Yeah, I just wanted to thank you, Damon, for that because I, my, I'm wondering if this was um, part of the the questioner's dilemma, right? If you're not aware mm-hmm. of medical devices that can help you, um, then you turn to right. what, what's presented on the market because that seems to work. Um, so thank you, Damon, right. for letting. I was unaware of that too. <laughs> no, so that's helpful oh, for me, moral theologian, to know that these possibilities exist to help couples achieve the communion they desire. Amen. Okay. Right. And I'll say one more thing about the yep, use of this dilator. The intention of it would the intention of a use of a dilator would be a temporary thing that they would not long require that. The woman would once she has trained her muscles to risk to relax naturally, it wouldn't be it would no longer be required. Whereas the sex toy type of thing, that I think has a danger of leading towards this has become the normative way of becoming aroused. So there's a distinction too in the purpose of two devices that might look very similar, um, but one is used as a medical aid to try to you know, restore normal function, whereas one is used as a substitute for normal function. All right, so let's keep going. So next yeah. question here. Okay. My, my, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, so my wife and I are going to celebrate our 10th marriage anniversary with three wonderful kids. We have healthy sexual intimacy. What concerns me is that she rarely or never takes the first step into it, and I wonder, uh, what this could be hiding. If I have done something wrong or if there's something with her past that could be now coming to the surface. It was not always like this in the first few years of marriage, um, but know that it is norm. But now now that it is now it is normal. Every time we talk about it, she doesn't seem uh, it is a big issue, but rather as something normal. Any suggestions or advice on how to further explore this? And so this is from a husband, um, obviously here. So I would say uh, a couple thoughts um, to this husband that's asking this question. One is great. Thank you for asking it. That um, going back to the, what we've been speaking about every time w- w- throughout this whole interview is that e- every time should be something unique. 
that every time should be its own unique dance, uh, every act should be its own unique masterpiece. That while there could be something that was present in the first couple years of marriage, that your relationship has changed. And now, so 10 years in, there's a whole host of things that could be different. Um, you could probably have had kids uh, during that time, which, uh, which Damon, I would love, at some point, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on, on this question, you know, in terms of the before and after pregnancy. Um, but sure, but, but, but I think so, 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 so there could be that to, to husband to consider that, but then just the state of life and, and, and stress, the stressors that are present within your relationship. Um, it could be that it's something that's been on the surface or it could just be something that's happening right on the surface. It could be that, that there's a lot of stress that she's carrying. And, and so how to have that conversation, um, but express to her also, um, what sex means to you. And what is it that it provides? And how do you feel that that it like what what is it what is its meaning to you in the relationship? And why is it that it hurts? Um, as I hear in this question, you know that the pain that you feel that that the pressure is on you to have to be the one to uh, uh, you know initiate every single time. And again, not in a way that's con- condemning. See, I think some of the question here is you've you've already. My concern with this question is that he's a you've already come up with um, a couple possible solutions to the problem without actually asking your mm. wife uh, what the potential solutions are. And so this is dangerous in marriage therapy. When we've, when we've mm. already, we've already uh, assessed the problem we, we, and we've already defined what the reasons are for that problem. And then we just look for, because then what happens is we just look for reasons to reinforce why we think that this is the problem. And when we get into that, um, that is that is a dangerous place because we've already created this inner narrative uh, and we're just finding all of these reasons to support what our narrative is without actually asking our spouse um, and getting her feedback on it um, before it becomes too late. So, so I would say pause in any sort of questioning as to what could be happening. Ask her. Um, and sometimes these questions aren't this isn't the conversation you're going to have, you know, five minutes before, you know, you're supposed to get the kids uh, down for bed or whatever it is like, like this, these type of conversations require a little bit more intentionality. You, you go out for dinner, uh, you go out for a walk, you go on a marriage retreat and you go on a vacation. Like sometimes these conversations require a little bit more attention and focus and, and, and respect. And so allow yourself to have that, um, that time that, that is needed. Um, so, uh, Damon, I guess I really do have a question from a medical perspective. It, like, are, do sure. we find changes after pregnancy and after childbirth um, when it comes to to some of these discussions, discussions of 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 comfort with intimacy, comfort with the body? Um, what, what what are your thoughts about that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, first, there's just changes with age, um, and which always accompanies having more children. Usually, you're older after you have two or three than when before you had any. Um, so <laughs> these gray hairs, man, they're, they're not just because I'm 40. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I mean, there's there's lots of sources for that. Um, but uh, you know, first of all, in this question, you know, I, I think that you know the most blunt and direct answer is sometimes you know guys just we, I think in our culture. We've lost that traditional understanding and appreciation of the reciprocity between men and women, you know, the feminine genius and the male differences where it's, you know, it's okay if, I mean, it's natural many times that the man will take the initiative, just like the man, you know, traditionally is the one that asks the woman to dance, that that proposes in marriage. And so that's, that's okay. And and that's not uncommon. And in fact, I would, I really believe that that is the norm. It's more often that the man you know, almost exclusive or usually um, takes, makes 
initiates the physical aspect of marital intimacy. And so I think that sometimes we, you know, again, in our broken world, we've kind of blurred that or we have this fantasy that a woman, you know, has the same physical desire that the man does and we're disappointed if our wife doesn't. Um, so that's one aspect. But the other thing, more directly to your question, is absolutely with um, with children, you know, you, you alluded to some of the things with, you know, lack of sleep that often accompanies having children, you know, both in the early stages and even up until they're two, four or five years old, they'll still come in the room in the middle of the night. Um, yeah, the, the stress of other things in life and, and, you know, insomnia or sleep deprivation fatigue is a common thing that women deal with that can decrease their interest and, and desire for physical intimacy with their husband. Um, but, uh, but also sometimes having children, particularly in the short term, you know, the first six weeks that, you know, we normally would advise the couple to abstain from uh, sexual intercourse for the healing of the, 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 more, the common, you know, vaginal, you know, um, lacerations from a vaginal delivery or even a C-section. So there's a time, you know, six weeks, but sometimes there can be discomfort with intercourse that, that can persist for maybe months after even that first delivery. Um, some women will experience it's worse with the first than, than with the second. Um, so, and, and their body, they're going to feel different. You know, they're nursing. So oftentimes the breasts are going to be engorged. They might not want the same type of caressing of the, that may be a little more comfortable when they're breastfeeding, you know, a, a type of physical, you know, a touch from her husband and that area is going to be different for her when she's nursing a baby and when she's not, it's going to be different when she's pregnant than when she's not. And so those are things that we have to be, you know, um, sensitive to and, um, and, willing to sacrifice the pursuit of our own maximum pleasure out of respect for our wife and her needs. Jennifer, anything you want to add to this question? Yeah, just a, just a brief, um, just something brief. So reading up on, as, as you did, Mario, not as intensively, I'm sure, but kind of reading up this past week on, on moral theologians, and the they, they've addressed these questions, but there was very interesting um, in one text, um, my mentor at Santa Croce in Rome, who was helpful um, in the in the drafting of Veritati Splendor, he writes that although there is mm. not a strict, although there is a right to conjugal relations, right, there mm. is no duty to demand them. Mm. Um, he said, however, it can be an act of charity to initiate an act of lovemaking with your spouse. So I would say, and this is perhaps more for, for ladies who are listening, right? Um, the mm. wife in, in the question, at least the way it's phrased by, by her, her kind husband, doesn't, it just sounds like she's okay with sex, but she feels no need to initiate. And I would say that if that's the situation, right? So we're not talking about a situation that, that Damon has mentioned where there are reasons that she would feel uncomfortable or that she needs to wait, um, that it might be a gift to her spouse, not that she initiates every single night or, mm -hmm. you know, not that mm -hmm. she goes for it, but that occasionally she makes that act of charity to remind her husband, right? Like, I desire you as you, I desire you too. You might, we might desire one another in different ways, but I still desire to have this communion and this union with you. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for sharing that because that really is beautiful. It's, it's kind of like thinking of it, the, what's popular, of course, with the five love languages, it's that's pop. Christian psychology, I guess. Um, but there's some truth to that in the sense that like just recognizing mm. at its base level, like that we receive and give love um, in different modes, so to speak, you know, whether it's words of affirmation or physical touch, or quality time or acts of service. 
And so some of it is require is learning how to listen to what each other's language is. And so if if it is then that um, physical touch and, and particular sexual intimacy is something that is that may not be a high, you know, value, you don't mind it, but uh, but it's not something you're going to go out and seek. And I think that question's come up repeatedly in in that particular situation came up repeatedly, like thinking about it, like um, one of the other questions that came up was uh, like, like, it's like, a, like working out, you know, it was kind of the way she said it was like, yeah, I mean, like, I don't mind working out, but, but, uh, but it's not something I'm just going to get up and go do. But once I'm kind of doing it, it's like, yeah, okay, we're having fun. Like, this is great. And kind of thinking of sexual intimacy in the same type of vein um, is really beautiful. The way mm-hmm. you said it is that like, if, if you know that this is a high value for your husband, then um, initiating it from time to time, not in a way that makes you feel like some slave or something of that nature, but initiating in the, again, in the context of everything I'm speaking about actually becomes a, a sincere act of, 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 of charity. Um, it, it's, it's, it would be akin to a uh, husband saying, okay, you know, Hey, like take the day off or, or, uh, or, uh, you know, buying flowers or, or, or any sort of intentional act of leaving notes or, or something saying like, I know this means something to you. Um, and so I want to be able to give this to you as, as a gift. Um, and so I think that's a beautiful way of being able to, to, to listen to that, to hear that. And so I think that, again, it's, it's sometimes I think because Damon, you've said this a little bit about the kind of the cultural narratives is that sometimes I think that the narrative that gets spun about men just wanting sex all the time is, uh, has kind of put in, has kind of put sex as in a negative sense for, for men also, um, mm. that we feel guilty right. in terms of asking, uh, because we feel like, am I just using and so this is where a couple of things, one, the work interiorly that has to be done about sifting out uh, whether I'm genuinely just lusting over my spouse or I'm genuinely desiring union, you know, with them. And there's, there is a distinction that needs to be made that is there. Um, and so that if I'm pursuing my spouse genuinely out of a unitive act, then it's something that, that, that is, again, in the context that we've been speaking about. But I think what women should know about men when it comes to their sexual arousal and sexual desire is that... I believe that what men are really seeking more than anything else is just rest. I think it's it's it it, it the brain chemistry is so strong um, after orgasm that it 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 just induces this profound profound sense of just tranquility and rest. Um, that to mm. have the capacity of being able to to rest in each other's arms um, is something that is very very healing for the husband um, and can be very mm. very healing um, if it's done in an appropriate way. And what great gift to be able to say that that we can rest together, that we can have this unity together, that all the worries, all the concerns of the world, all the worries and all the concerns of the day, we can set those things aside and we can create this safe haven uh, between the two of us. And that all that is required is the two of us to be able to create this is something that is so beautiful uh, when we really think of it. And allowing that then to be a safe space that we can kind of reconnect with and, and come back to over and over again and utilize as a significant part of our relationship, um, that it then allows for a richer context, you know, to be able to speak about that. It's mm. not so much that, that, and so when it comes to beauty and kind of physical appearance and those things, I mean, sometimes the husband, if the husband says it in a way that's crass, then yeah, it's just crass, you know, it's like, well, you're, those, yeah, you're, you're, your bleep just looks really good in those jeans. You know what I mean? Like, or, or, you know, just like, if <laughs> yeah. we're going to be crass, we're going to be crass and, and expect that that's the response. But if you talk about beauty or saying that those clothes complement you in a certain way, or, or that certain makeup, mm. it, it, it brings something out in you that, that I'm able to see 
uh, you a little bit differently. It, it's it's not it's not that I. You look I, wonderful I, tonight. You look wonderful <laughs> tonight. Exactly, exactly. Eric Clapton, you got it. That's it. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, yeah. when we speak about it in that context, um, it allows for a richer response to emerge. Um, and it allows for, again, something unique uh, to genuinely uh, present itself. So these are great, I like great how you, questions. Go ahead. I love your the talk about rest. And it just reminds me, I mean, not all of the popular terms to describe Marilyn, of course, are bad. And I think that making love is a good one. But and, and until you said that, I never thought about how describing the act of course of sleeping together is, is yes. a very, you know, beautiful way of describing it. You know, my wife and I slept together. Yes. And um, so I, I like that. I want to just, I, like well, I just want to say as somebody who has had yeah. struggles with sleeping, uh, like when yeah. I get a good night's rest, yeah. it's like I, I slept, like you wake up in the morning, you're like, Oh, I, I didn't wake up. Like that was what a gift. I mean, like yeah. we underestimate the power of, 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 of good rest. Uh, in sleep. And so again, Absolutely. not to make it a, a high a value in and of itself, that would be a uh, usury just like with pleasure, but rather when it's in the mm -hmm. context, when pleasure and rest is all within the context of love um, in an embrace, in relationship, then it becomes the natural byproducts uh, that 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 are just just that. They're just the natural byproducts that emerge when we're genuinely loving and committed uh, to one another. Go ahead, Damon. Yeah, just one superficial example analogy that mm -hmm. applies is, you know, my wife and I enjoy watching movies, but we kind of have different preferences. My wife prefers like the romance, the, the British kind of chick flicks. I prefer, like probably most guys, the action film. And so, you know, we, we kind of just give and take some, you know, we'll watch sometimes it's it's kind of a, a charitable thing for me to be willing to watch, you know, a, a chick flick type movie for the sake of my wife, because I know she enjoys that. And many times I'll enjoy it, too. But then vice versa, she wouldn't necessarily choose to watch an action movie on her own, but she knows that I enjoy that. So she'll do that as a charity towards me. And so there's that kind of reciprocity and, and giving, um, you know, to each one, to each other in that, in that regard also. That's right. Thank you. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, I would like to hear uh, Dr. Mario and friends uh, address some of the problems that people with past sexual assault in childhood face with intimacy and small or large ways to start addressing and working on these problems with your spouse or your fiance before marriage. Um, this question came up a few times in different ways, but I think it's a really good one. Um, I think that, okay, so in, in, let's, let's kind of speak about an ideal situation in terms of development. Like when, when should this question come up within a relationship? Well, it doesn't come out in the first date, of course. This isn't something that you're going to put on the table with somebody that you just met. <laughs> Jennifer's laughing. <laughs> like, it's, it's, no, but that's, that's good advice. That's it, good advice. Sometimes yeah. we overshare. Yeah, well, many times we overshare, you know, because we don't know what boundaries are anymore. And so, like, uh, so we don't share that right out of the gates. Um, the person has to kind of earn your trust. But if there comes a point where you're really discerning a relationship, discerning marriage specifically with this with this person, then at some point it becomes an act of trust to be able to share all aspects of yourself and giving them an opportunity to kind of know who you are as well as you being able to just invite them into um, all aspects of your life which includes your memory in in, in the, the traumas that you that you that you do have experienced so where does that happen well that happens at some point you know into the heavy courting uh stage of the relationship when you've been together for a few months and this person has genuinely earned your trust and then you want to be able to share and continue to open up. And there should be a natural kind of process that that unfolds within that. 
I think certainly by engagement, these conversations should be had, um, especially because when it comes to sexual past, there could be questions of STDs in, 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 and those are things that you just need to know. And just from a pragmatic perspective, uh, you need to know. So, but when it comes specifically about sexual assault here, uh, not just sexual history, but sexual assault, I think first and foremost, it, you have to do your own work with regards to this. And if you haven't sought counseling to heal, uh, to process the, the trauma of your past, then I would say first and foremost, please, you know, go ahead and, and, and seek that first so that you can be able to process that in, interiorly um, and then be able to find, okay, well, what, what is pertinent to share? You don't have to share all the details. All the details don't have to come out. It doesn't have to be a nitty gritty reliving. And I actually wouldn't encourage that either for yourself because that could re-traumatize you. That could re-trigger um, some mm. of the some of the fear um, as well. And so, so trust your memory, trust which trust what, trust your your judgment, and in terms of what you feel needs to be shared. But being able to share some of that to some degree to give them an opportunity to speak and to bring love um, in, into that. So that would be it. That would be the first thing. The second piece, though, is that if this is causing problems in the relationship, and it seems like I can't tell in the wording of the question, is that is it is it causing problems? Well, what what specific problems is it causing? Is it is it is it causing problems when it comes to advancement with any sort of sexual movement? So maybe even an engagement where, listen, I think an engagement, engagement should be short for many reasons. But one of the reasons I think, honestly, like the temptation for for faltering, uh, it should is at its highest as it should be like you're the it, you're you should be, have a high sexual desire for your fiance. Um, and I think I need to say that, which is it. it and so like it. Mm. it there's probably going to be more temptation because you're moving towards marriage. You know, you're, you're, there should be a lot of desires. You're moving towards marriage. You've already committed yourself. You want to spend your life with this person. But are you finding that in terms of it's so hard to answer this question because what are the problems? Is the problems that any sort of um, movement towards sexual desire is 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 is, um, is re-triggering you? And there's been a difficulty when it comes to equating sexual desire with the trauma. Again, this is where the work of trauma counseling really can help to untangle uh, those various emotions to bring healing um, into into that space. So, but Jennifer, you, obviously you shared beautifully with us at the beginning of this podcast. Um, so I would love to hear what your experience is with this to whatever degree you feel comfortable sharing. Thank you. Um, so I, I really want to emphasize the first point you said, which is there, the work on yourself needs to be done. And I say this because I have met more than one woman in her th who waited until her 30s um, to share her story of rape or sexual abuse or sexual trauma. So she never went to a counselor. She never went to a therapist. She never told an adult, right? Some of these, some of these girls were 13 years old um, because there, there was great fear. And sometimes the first reaction, unfortunately, that they met at 30 some years old was that was your fault, right? A young, a young 13 year old girl who had suffered this. Mm. And I think perhaps even on, on the part of Catholics, there's this fear that if we say something happened to me, um, that either we're told that it's our fault, it's sad that this still exists, but, but it does, um, or that, um, that somehow we get shoved in, into a category where we're angry, <laughs> um, we, we feel that we have to take radical positions. And I think this is why, this is, I think Catholics, and, and you know better than me, Mario, so maybe this is just my own perspective. I think we have difficulty saying these things. And so it really is important to take that, that first step 
of speaking with someone who has experience and who knows how to address what you've been through, right? So the temptation can be um, to share with the person who's closest to you, but that person, um, as much as you love them, may not have the right words to say to you. And so I would highly suggest, first of all, that they do reach out to a trusted therapist, a, tr a trusted counselor or psychologist, because what you get there is not just the opportunity to share, which is what a lot of us really first need is to say those words out, out loud, right? I was, I was raped is a really difficult thing to say out loud. I was abused. Um, but also you will receive the tools that you need from that progressive relationship to be able to continue to live your life and not just to exist, right? Not just to live in fear, but to continue to flourish and to continue to heal. Um, I shared earlier about the, the conversation I had with my husband, but I really want to begin by, by urging what you call that first step, urging people who have been abused to seek out a trusted therapist or, or psychologist who can help guide them through healing and through flourishing. And this means that when they do have that conversation with the person they love, with the person that they are most or would become most intimate with, it will be a conversation that gives life to both of them and not just a conversation of misplaced shame or fear. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. Damon, anything you want to add? Um, I, I don't have much to add to what you said. I'll just, you know, kind of bring it out there from my perspective. I've often been very, you know, saddened, you know, to see, you know, how much more frequent this uh, this kind of suffering and abuse is than we want to believe um, and by people that we should be able to trust, you know, both in families and even in the church. And it, it is a, a sad reminder of, you know, just how prevalent, you know, the sin is in the world today, you know, to be, to see this among my patients and even friends of, you know, um, of ours that I've known. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I think the conservative estimates have it in one in five women. Um, and I think, but, but I think mm. they think more realistically, it's kind of one in three, uh, when it comes to some type of sexual mm. harassment or sexual assault, that's, you're talking about 20 to 33% of female population in our country. That's, that's a mercy. That's a lot of people. So, right. and, and it doesn't right. touch the male population either. It doesn't um, touch I what? I think those statistics, that doesn't touch the male population either, no, 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 right? Exactly. Um, exactly. Who have their own feelings and their own way of experiencing the kind of shame that comes with, with being unable to protect right. and defend themselves. Okay. Well, I, I want to honor everybody's yeah. time here. I know we have a few more minutes, but I would like to us to at least talk briefly if we can. And if we don't have the time for it, then that's fine. We can we'll just briefly talk about a number, a slew of questions that came up with regards to later in life and uh, premenopause, mm -hmm. menopause, uh, erectile dysfunction, and just kind of how to navigate these things. And so I don't, I don't want to, um, so I, I, Damon, I actually want to start with you from a medical perspective, sure. like what, 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 what are medical recommendations uh, with regards to both of those uh, situations when it comes to sexuality in the later years? Sure. I'll, I'll just start with the, the erectile function issue. Um, it, it is very common in men, especially approaching and passing 60 as kind of an age where we see it a lot of men. I don't deal with many male patients, but you know, I'm, I'm aware of that. I can understand why. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but, but it is certainly entirely reasonable for any man suffering that to seek medical remedy for a physiologic cause of an inability to um, 
uh, obtain erection and be able to complete the marital act. And so that, you know, people were kind of surprised when the Catholic Church didn't have any opposition to the introduction of Viagra on the market, um, because it was actually something to aid the, the normal function within the proper context of, of a married relationship. So, um, and, and that's something that, you know, can easily be remedied often. Um, sometimes it's more difficult to address. And, you know, it's, it's, and, and for many couples, as they approach, you know, the end of their life, it's just natural that the physical aspect of marital intercourse becomes less of uh, of the completed uh, marital act with climax on either part. That that's just a common thing, and that and that's okay. Um, it, we shouldn't. This is that's not always something we should pathologize and labels that disorder. Um, now with women, which I do deal with, with menopause, the average age of menopause for a woman is 51. Um, there's, and sometimes women will experience it earlier um, and much earlier if they've had both ovaries removed for um, some reason as a part of hysterectomy or cancer surgery. But many women will experience changes. And the one that can be most troublesome for women is vaginal dryness or even vaginal atrophy. Um, and that can be, you know, addressed uh, again, that becomes a common source of pain. Now intercourse with her husband becomes a source of pain. That's not normal for her to experience pain with intercourse. So, you know, something as simple as a lubricant, you know, can alleviate that or a vaginal moisturizer. Many of these things are, don't require prescription. Sometimes they would benefit from like a vaginal estrogen. Even though it is estrogen, we're not talking about a contraceptive. We're talking about a medical treatment that's actually helping to restore the normal vaginal tissues, the normal um, uh, level of um, thickness in the vaginal tissues that become, become thinned out sometimes in response to menopause. Um, interestingly, um, in that area of vaginal, women who do regularly have conjugal relations with their husband, the husband's semen actually has some hormonal effects that can, that can alleviate that vaginal dryness. So if a woman's only having intercourse with her husband once every two or three months, it's going to be more painful than if she has intercourse with her husband, you know, weekly or so, um, or more. Um, so that's, you know, just some practical things about, you know, the experience of women with menopause and then with men um, with erectile dysfunction later in life. I don't want to be crass, but I just want to say, I think like every six-year-old male just kind of applauded and was like, yay, <laughs> like this is, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I told you it was healthy. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I have to admit, like, sorry, oh, okay. Mario can see me laughing too, because yeah. I was like, this kind of sounds like a commercial, have sex more often, you'll enjoy it more. <laughs> <laughs> and here you thought I was approved, huh? <laughs> <laughs> But Damon, thanks. Those are wonderful recommendations for people to, to be able to have these type of conversations with. And because I think if because certainly the the church the, the the world has gone one direction, but the church is just getting better at talking about these things and welcoming these types of conversations, which is really the whole purpose that I wanted to do this podcast, is so that people can be equipped with some answers and to say, okay, look, here's some trusted sources to be able to then take these back um, to their counselor or to their medical doctor or to their spouse. And be able to ask and and um and, and get some more information um follow up with this so jennifer i know you need to get going here but is there anything else you want to add with that particular question or or anything else in general that that we've been discussing that that, that you want to offer up as we kind of wrap things up um oh goodness you put me on the spot now i have to think immediately I did. um i think first of all i just want to thank you mario for having this podcast because i know every year yeah. i have 
a special day dedicated just to this, <laughs> just to this issue for the seminarians to prepare them um, as they were preparing for the confessional and for and for conversations with married couples. And often um, they would say, "Wow, I didn't know those were questions married couples had." And um, mm. And at that time, I was still single. So I said, yes, I only know because I get phone calls from priests who have like locked themselves in their office or, you know, slightly anonymous <laughs> Facebook messages from girls I went to elementary school who know I teach in a seminary and just need help. So I want to thank you for that because I think it is important for Catholics to be able to to have the these conversations, to have in a way, as you said, it's not crass that that acknowledges that these are wholly awkward things we can talk about with humor and also that the church does want to address these things right we don't want to leave people kind of foundering on the shores or as i heard one young married woman put it whispering in the corner with my husband trying to figure out what's legitimate or not right. because when the church speaks hmm. on these issues right she does so because she recognizes that god has a plan for married love and she mm -hmm. wants to be able to right. help spouses to love each other to the utmost of their ability and so to be able to speak about the beauty of this married act, to be able to speak about the fact that the unitive and the procreative constantly go together and strengthen our married love for the joys, the challenges, and the difficulties that lay ahead. I think it's a great gift. So thank you, Mario. You're welcome. Damon, any final thoughts as we wrap up? Yeah, um, it does come up as another question. I just want to give a very cursory you know, teaser about that, but there's some things that have to do with fear of pregnancy. And, and I think that, you know, as a, as a person who specializes in helping women deal with infertility, I think at the heart of this, you know, we need to just restore an appreciation of fertility as a healthy condition of the child as the greatest gift in marriage. And I think when we restore that kind of original, you know, you know, innocence of understanding, I think it helps put into perspective, you know, um, an attitude of, fertility awareness monitoring a periodic abstinence solely for the purpose of avoiding children, kind of getting going to pregnancy with a default mode of preventing pregnancy and using a morally illicit means. So I just I just want to leave that as kind of a final, you know, thought, you know, that I think we need to, as a church and as a culture, you know, uh, rediscover uh, the the gift, uh, the supreme gift of the children are, as, as, as St. Paul VI said in Humanae Vitae. Sure. I wish we had more time to talk about that also, because I agree, and I know there's a context of the question that came up about being in your 40s and, and the fear of pregnancy kind of sure. being there, that I think it, to some degree is, yeah. I mean, there's some there's some validity to that. Um, and so, uh, but unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. So we'll have to save that for another <laughs> another episode. So. Are, are we going to do a definitely, part Listen, if, 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 if people want, if people have more questions, I'm, I'm, and you two are open to doing another one, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to doing a part two and, uh, and to, to keep this conversation going. Cause I want, I want, uh, these questions need to be asked and, uh, we need to be able to answer right. them from, from, from the perspective as we did. I mean, Damon, the stuff that you proposed, you know, it's just, it's it, very important, you know, for people to even know that these things are available to them, um, from a medical perspective. Right. And, uh, and, um, and, and I think that we need to do that. So, so I think the last thing that I want to really wrap this whole thing up with is, um, as we've stated the whole time, like, like there's something, um, beautiful, uh, and unique about the marital act in your relationship with, with this person in this time. And you always like all aspects of our marriage, we can't, you know, when we talk about coveting our neighbor's wife, we have to caution that doesn't just mean 
sometimes that means like, you know, obviously, like as, as it sounds like com- comparing your spouse to to somebody else. But think sometimes when we've been married mm. for a long time, we sometimes can compare our spouse to to who they were or who we want them to be. And so mm. we need to be cautious about that as well in the sense that like we always have to take them as they are today and the mystery of the person as it is being revealed to you today. And so in marriage, there should always be this, this freshness uh, that you're trying to pursue. Like you never stop dating. You never stop trying to figure each other out. You never stop trying to um, understand the eternal mystery that is within your spouse. We, we, we fall into ruts when we take each other for granted. Those things are, are, are really, you talk about killers of, of passion. I mean, that'll, I mean, when you just find your spouse boring, you ain't going to make love to that, you know, that just ain't happening. And so like, <laughs> you know, like as we continue just to find excitement and, 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 and again, to whatever context we can, to whatever stage of life that we're in. So even when we talked about people later in life, it doesn't mean that like, Damon, as you said that, you know, it, it, it may not mean that every time achieves climax, but even if that's the case, then that is okay. As long as the, the intention is right. right and you're moving in the right direction and you're acting in accordance with God's plan and his teaching for you, um, then then we leave the rest to him. So thank you both so much for joining me on the podcast. It was a, a sincere gift and pleasure. And I thank you all for, for listening to this very long and episode. And I pray that it's given you some, some, uh, some insight and some blessing to your day. So God bless everybody. Okay, well, that brings this episode to a close. If I would have had another 45 minutes with them, we would have tackled another 10 questions in all sincerity. So I pray that what we were able to tackle provides some clarity to you and the difficulties that you find yourself in. And quite honestly, the challenge with this conversation is that it just seems like it's never, never enough. There's, there's never enough time, or maybe you never answer the question appropriately. And so I hope that you can hear even in our discussion that there was some tension at times about some of the responses, but that's okay. Cause that means that we're all trying to be faithful in pursuing what the, what the correct answer is in conversation and dialogue is what allows that to transpire. So many blessings to you, my dear listener. Wherever you find yourself today, whatever difficulties you may have in your relationship, whatever advice that you're looking for, I pray that this episode offered some to you. And if you know somebody who is struggling with this in their marriage, then I pray that you can offer this episode to them, that it may bless them and educate them in some form or fashion. So God bless you all. Have a great day and we'll see you soon. Bye.